Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Robert Yeager and the Tao Foundation. Welcome back from your weekend. Uh, We have a show today that exists in two parts. The second one is way lighter uh, than the first one. The first one is a pretty serious look at American women of the far right. Uh, The second part is uh, Alexandra Petri, one of the funnier writers in America. uh, She has ranked 100 Christmas songs in their order of quality. So you're going to have to make kind of a cognitive and emotional shift from one set to the other. But joining us right now, I mean, the minute I saw this article, I wanted to talk about this on this show. It is so striking. Glenna Gordon, a documentary photographer and photojournalist who has produced a a photo essay called American Women of the Far Right for the New York Review of Books. Uh, There's a a longer, more text-heavy version uh, of it on a site called topic.com. First of all, welcome to our show and our conversation. Glenna Gordon. Thank you for having me. Maybe just begin with, I mean, this isn't an idea I think that would cross most people's minds. And, and I think the, the faces, the front faces of most of the far right, of white supremacist groups, of hate groups, tend to be the faces of men. So how did you wind up where you were? Well, like many people, I was surprised by the election and I was surprised by white women who, in my opinion, seem to be voting against their own interests when they voted for Trump. And I think that many of us make a cognitive error where we think that because uh, somebody is a woman, she might be progressive, she might be pro-woman, and that is just not true. And in fact, a lot of women in America and all over the world are involved in political movements that do not necessarily advance the rights of women. And I saw all of these articles about, first about women who voted for Trump, and then as there was an uptick in hate crimes and hate groups, it was almost always about men. That seemed to not make sense to me, and so I wanted to find more out about that. And how easy was it to approach these people? I mean, you kind of deal with this in the, in the pieces, but, but what was it like to go up to these people and, and want their confidence in the way that you were going to photograph them and depict them? At first, it was very hard. And then, like all things, uh, I got better at it. And so when I began, it was not smooth at all. On one of my first trips on my own, I was uh, forcefully escorted by armed men up from a white supremacist convention in a remote part of Alabama. At another point, I was kicked out of a cabin full of pretty hardcore skinheads and neo-Nazis the night before the demonstration at Charlottesville after they quote-unquote tested me by having me eat some pepperoni pizza, which isn't kosher. That was them trying to find out if, whether or not I was Jewish. Right. But by and, the way, when the Spike Lee movie about this project of yours is made, that's going to be a big scene. <laughs> uh. Yeah, I guess so. So those were some rough experiences early on. But then I, I toughened up and I learned about the difference between my own fears and whether or not I was actually at risk. You know, I think that we can approach white supremacy. There can be fear in our approach. There can be fear in our coverage. And that's palpable to the people we are interacting with. And they take advantage of that. And, and ultimately, that's what they want. You know, white supremacy works by instilling fear in others. For me, that meant realizing that if I am a journalist from a national publication meeting with the leadership of a group on the far right, they actually have quite a bit invested in my safety. It looks, the optics of something happening to me 
are quite terrible for them. And so my risk is actually quite low. Mm. They might want to make me uncomfortable and they might want to make me scared, but they're not actually going to hurt me. And the people who are actually at risk are people of color, are are their neighbors, are minorities, are all of the groups that are demonized by their rhetoric. I'm the least at risk. Therefore, I have a position of privilege, which I can use to approach them and to sort of try and break down some of their rhetoric and look at what's really happening in these movements. Let's have our listeners meet a couple of these women, at least um, kind of second or third hand. Uh, there's one that you uh, that we know, I think, only as Cassandra, um, mother of Smiley. Uh, tell us about Cassandra. Cassandra lives in Alabama. She lives in a remote area without cell phone service. She moved there with her daughter following a man who may or may not be her partner, unclear relationship. Uh, She is from New Mexico, Arizona, came up in the militia scene there, uh, which is a pretty hard militia scene. Those are some of the most extreme militias in the USA. And to me, she's a really good example of somebody who is uh, looking for somebody to follow, who's looking for a reason to move forward in her life and for looking for an anchor. And so she meets this man named Terry who convinces her and several other people to move to this very remote corner of Alabama to form their own militia cell. And she brings her daughter and she's unique in that she is in leadership in the militias. And there's a lot of militias that do not have women in leadership. And for the most part, while I was working on this project, I really did not want to photograph children, but she was extremely insistent that I photograph her daughter, Smiley, because uh, as she said, Smiley is the future of the movement and we'll, we won't use Smiley's real name for her own protection. She would say things to me like, I'm an organic constitutionalist, which is part of the lingo that the militias use. But then when I would say things like, well, do you think women should have the right to vote? You know, and that's an, an amendment that came in, you know, 1920. It's not part of the original constitution. She would be like, yes, absolutely. And wouldn't be able to sort of parse through the contradiction in that. So she's adopting the lingo, but not necessarily fully embracing the ideology. For her, it's just about finding someone like Terry who's going to take care of her and her daughter. Yeah, so I think, you know, if you if we asked the average person to think at all about this, this is probably a subject that the average person hasn't thought that much about, but that person would probably think, well, these are probably women who have, like, these really strong, ferocious uh, alpha male white supremacist boyfriends or husbands who kind of dragged them into this movement, and, you know, they are sort of only maybe semi-willing participants. But some of the women that you found very specifically thought that their wombs were important, right? That the whole idea of this movement is to have lots of white people and there's, you know, it takes two kinds of people to make a white person. Yes, absolutely. And there certainly are women who get involved because their partners are involved. I think that's actually a very common point of entry. And then there are women who are involved on their own. And one of the things that connects a lot of very different groups on the far right is a belief in the future of the white race and the importance of white babies. And so then you take someone like Ayla Stewart, who goes online by the names Adorable Ayla or A Wife with a Purpose. And for her, it's very much about making white babies. She's issued a white baby challenge online where, you know, she's encouraging uh, white people to have more babies to try and shift the demographics of the United States. And she is very much her own activist. Her husband, I don't know anything about him. He was present while we met, but did not participate in our interview. And so for her family, she is leading the charge forward towards white supremacy. 
Right. You know, with her, I I'm maybe simple-mindedly wind up thinking of another person named Stewart, and that was Martha Stewart or Gwyneth Paltrow or somebody like that. There was sort of a little bit of a lifestyle guru yeah. quality to her, like she was basically in the white supremacist goop business or something. I think that's a pretty spot-on assessment. And, you know, part of what she's doing and part of what makes her dangerous is she's creating this aesthetics of white supremacy and this sort of like – if you look at her online presence, it's very much about being a mom and being homeschooling her kids and crafts and baking brownies, you know. So she's trying to separate the politics of white supremacy from the aesthetics of white supremacy. But then if you look at her account on a place like Gab, which is a, yeah. sort of a more violent version of Twitter or a more right wing version of Twitter, you know, she, there she's posting about George Soros which is a thing that people talk about as a way to sort of code their anti-Semitism. She's posting about German culture. She's posting about Silicon Valley enabling pedophiles. She's spreading conspiracy theories. So there's this very dual online presence, right? There's her greater online presence, which is on Instagram and Etsy and trying to promote homemaking. And then there's the backstage of what she's really about. And that is her and I having a conversation where she's going to tell me that she's really not racist because there's only one definition for the word racist, which implies a malice towards people of color and has no room for the idea of institutional racism or of, you know, systematic disenfranchisement. Or, you know, I think about like my New York world where people talk about things like microaggressions, like that is a thousand percent not part of the world of Ayla Stewart, no. you know, and then she's going to tell me that even though there's only one definition for the word racist, there's three definitions for the word Nazi. So she's doing a lot of double talk. And mm. that is how this movement works. It attracts people through something that she posts that's more palatable and allows them to enter the world of white supremacy without having to be part of the Klan or a Nazi group. It makes it accessible to people. We've talked mostly uh, about you uh, and about these women as a straight-up journalist, but you're a photojournalist and you're a photographer. Yeah. So the photographer, you know, when you're doing that, it's sort of a different thing because you have to make a whole set of decisions. And obviously it probably wouldn't make sense or be fair to make them all look like Tolkien's orcs or something like that. On the other hand, you don't want to do anything that kind of glamorizes the movement. So, so I don't know, as you looked through uh, your camera at them, what kinds of thoughts and aesthetic and journalistic decisions were you making? I mean, the decisions were never easy. I mean, the decisions about children felt the most clear to me. Like when I was with Ayla, I had her children turn around, so I'm not photographing their faces. Mm. You know, one of the pictures that I received a lot of flack for on the internet is a picture of a woman named Erica, who's in a group called Identity Europa, which is one of the main groups that was responsible for the violence at Charlottesville. And Erica is a very pretty girl, and she looks pretty in my picture. And, you know, some of the criticism I got was that I was, you know, making sexy, pretty Nazi pinups. Mm. You know, I take that criticism to heart. But at the same time, part of what makes Erica dangerous is that she uses her beauty as a weapon. And if you look at someone like Erica or a more popular person online, someone like Lauren Southern, part of their appeal is that they are these Aryan ideals. I mean, Erica less so because she's covered in tattoos, but then she she appeals to a slightly different demographic. But all of these women are using that as a way to reach others. And that is why they are dangerous recruiting tools. And I think that we need to look at that and we need to engage with the reality that that is how the far right is recruiting. It's, it's always a struggle in journalism. Like how much do you tell the story of people 
who, from our point of view, at least ideologically, live under a rock and crawl out from under a rock and make trouble. Um, and I think every journalism institution struggles this uh, struggles with this question in one way or another. It's certainly we're in the business of telling people stuff that we know about, not hiding stuff that we know about. Uh, on the other hand, there are people who feel like, well, yeah, but the more of a spotlight you give these people, the more trouble they cause. I'm assuming you ran into this as you started to talk to various magazines and editors about your project. Absolutely. And there were, you know, uh, this was commissioned by a magazine that ended up killing it. And I pitched it to a lot of other places before I could find anybody who was interested in publishing it. There is the idea that we shouldn't give them air. I disagree with that. They have plenty of air. They have their own platforms. They're communicating to their own audiences. These groups are growing, whether we look at it critically or not. And so my goal as a photographer and as a journalist is how do we engage with this critically? How do we look at what's really happening and at who holds power? And you see a lot of representations in the media of the burning cross, the burning swastika with a group of men in formation whose faces are dark. You can't see them and they look very menacing and they look very scary. I never wanted to take those kind of pictures because that's how they want to be seen. They mm. want to be fearful. They want to be anonymous and they want to look like a strong army. And so if you look really specifically, like there were a lot of uh, newswire pictures that came out of an event last year in Georgia where they did burn a swastika and, you know, you'll see tight crops and it looks like this giant group of scary anonymous men. In reality, there were maybe 20 or 30 people there, you know, who knows who those people are and what they're doing. And I don't want them to be anonymous and I don't want them to be scary. I want to look people in the eye and grapple with the repercussions of their ideas and have a real conversation about why are they doing this and what does it mean to them and not just let them set the terms where they all are anonymous and scary. You know, we talked about uh, Ayla and maybe being a little bit of a Martha Stewart. Um, uh, and I mean, most of the people that you're writing about are clearly true believers, you know, capital T, capital B, true believers. But occasionally I get a little whiff of a hustle here and there. Like, didn't they, didn't somebody try to charge you $500 to photograph a cross burning? Yeah, that was Amanda Barker of the Loyal White Knights. The, it's a Ku Klux Klan group in North Carolina. They are one of the more active Klan chapters in the country and they are hustling. Hmm. She's hustling big time, you know, and I think that's an example where her husband is the public face of it, but she's in the background mailing out the flyers, sewing the robes, making sure that everybody brings something for the barbecue because the thing that's as important to the clan as the cross burning is the barbecue and the picnic that comes before it. That's where social ties are formed. And that is what I think we need to look at more critically, not just the cross burning. And I wrote to her like, I'm a journalist. I can't pay for access. That's not how this works. And we played a little bit of a cat and mouse game. And then I ended up not going. Mm -hmm. Ultimately, that's because I, I think that it's important to look at them like, on a Friday night in their living room in the back roads of North Carolina and not just at their proudest and are at their most vocal. Again, it's about how do they want to be seen versus how are they in the community every day? How are they threatening their neighbors? How are they creating an aura of fear? And what's behind that hood? What is really happening and who really holds the power in these movements? You just said these movements, but although a lot of times people in your um, articles say the movement. And I, I wondered about that because we know how easily ideological movements can splinter. You look over on the left and, you know, nobody can agree about anything. Um, and, and I sort of wondered about this, too. You know, that is there just the movement 
are there enough things that all of them subscribe to so that you can say there was, once again, capital T, capital M, the movement? Well, so a lot of people will say they're in the movement, but will also spend a lot of time telling you how they are different than other groups. For example, anybody in Identity Europa would spend an endless amount of time arguing to you that they are not Nazis, that they are different than the Klan, that they are different than this guy, and they are different than that guy. That's this sort of rhetorical showmanship where they can say, look, the Klan and the Nazis, those are the real racists. We're not really racists. We're just identitarians. And so that'll be part of the rhetoric. But again, my goal was always to parse through the front stage and the sort of showmanship. And then if you look at what are the common things that they stand for, they stand for white children, they stand for our white future, and they do consider themselves part of the movement. And it means different things to people in different groups, but they are unified. I actually think that, you know, the belief in white wombs is one of the things that unifies people across these movements more than anything else. Somebody in Identity Europa and somebody in the Klan both believe that babies should be white and that they are there to advocate for the future of their white children. And that is what unites them, even though they will, again, spend all day trying to tell you how they are different from another group. We're talking to Glenna Gordon. I just can't recommend enough that you go to uh, you can go to nybooks.com, the New York Review of Books uh, daily online and and see uh, American women of the women of the far right. And then actually you should check out the topic piece, too. It's really good. Uh, That's uh, the secret weapons of the far right. So let me just end this with something that maybe works off that second title a little bit. I think the sexual cliche of this sex role cliche of this would be that the guys are going out there and they, you know, they make a big speech or they burn a cross or something and then they go off and they knock back a bunch of beers and watch some football and that the women are kind of in the background as the unglamorous glue kind of keeping the movement together. Like if I had to make a very sort of stereotype ridden guess about things, that's the guess that for better or worse, I would probably make. How far off am I? I think you're actually pretty close. I think that like women are doing a lot of the legwork. You know, if you look at someone like Erica, like not just does she provide, you know, men don't want to go to a party that women aren't at, mm-hmm. right? So there's got to be some girls there to get the men to come. So if you look at the party that she hosted the night Heather Heyer died, that's the Saturday night after the violence at Charlottesville, she is the one who, uh, when Airbnb canceled the reservation of known white supremacists, she scrambled and found them another house. She's posting on an app called Discord beforehand, helping other people organize transportation so they can arrive from all over the country and show up here. And she's running this party. And, you know, you can spend all day looking at, you know, I think there's a lot of media efforts, for example, to dox the men, which means to really the identity of some of the men who beat people up at Charlottesville and who are the most violent and most aggressive. And I do think that's important that there needs to be repercussions for their actions. But the social glue of this movement is the woman who throws the party where that guy gets to celebrate his violence that night. That's a really amazing point, and we're going to end it there. Uh, Glenna Gordon, documentary photographer and photojournalist. Again, the photo essay, uh, American Women of the Far Right, uh, is in the New York Review of Books. Thanks for being with us today. Thank you for having me.
We would like to welcome back to the show one of our absolutely favorite guests and one of the funniest, I should narrow it down, one of the seven funniest writers in America. Now, she could be like the second funniest writer in America. I'm not going to get more specific, but there's sort of an amorphous group of seven funny writers into which Alexandra Petri fits. She's a Washington Post columnist who has painstakingly ranked the 100 best Christmas songs of all time in a manner which actually leached out 37% of her life force. Uh, she's not the person she used to be. But uh, but welcome back to the show the, to the other remaining 63% of you, Alexandra Petri. Thanks for having me, or the shadow of my former self <laughs> exactly. that I have become. Right. Um, so uh, let's just start. Let's start. So you well you ranked the, you did this ranking, and and it's one of those pieces which as we read it, we can see your mind and soul being destroyed as you write it, right? There was something punishing about the effort itself. Yeah, it's one of those sort of yellow wallpaper-esque type things where you're sort of trapped in a room and gradually you begin to unravel and take bits of the furniture with you. And uh, I think when I started the task, I thought, well, I know definitely that I hate 10 Christmas songs and I love 10 other Christmas songs. And I'm certain the remaining 80 won't be a problem. (laughs) And that was sort of, I think, a a famous last word. Right warning sign and i did not heed it and three days later my editor found me whimpering and broken sort of hunched over my keyboard saying and he he sent me a note saying you've omitted to include numbers 42 through 48 and i'm like i forgot that there were numbers from 42 (laughs) to 48 so we really struggled but in the end i did rank all 100 christmas songs yes you did so so let's start in hell all right so um, it, it, it's not literally in hell, I don't think, but the Little Drummer Boy, you're not alone, right, in thinking that the Little Drummer Boy is the worst Christmas song in the world. No, I, I hope not, because I'm objectively correct in so thinking. So uh, I'll just hit you up for a joke. Have you ever heard the David Bowie one? Oh, you know, I've heard it. And people always ask me, oh, you you hate Little Drummer Boy, but have you heard the David Bowie one? And I've heard it. It doesn't change the fact that it's a terrible song. Right. I, I don't know. You know what? I, I feel we're gonna play it anyway. Here we go. I just did that to hurt you. Yeah, no. I'm, uh, to be frank, incensed by hearing that. Uh, and oh, We're back to the pun uh, show, are we? I apologize. I, I couldn't resist. No, but I think the, the thing that bothers me most about that song is all the onomatopoeia. Right. Even David Bowie can't say the lyrics, rump-a-pum-pum, especially not when they're like 80% of the song. Right. Just you, it, have a drum. Make it, a drum sound. Right. It's, it's, it's like claiming that dogs say bow-wow. Uh, yeah. Dogs don't say bow wow. Drums don't go pum pum pum. It sounds nothing like a dog. Yeah, bow wow. Like meow, I can kind of see, <laughs> but I don't mean to get you sidetracked under that at all. Uh, so um, and so, you have sort of a couple of basic rules: no onomatopoeia and no bells. Right, as as few bells as possible. Yeah, no bells. No They're bells. like the no capes of my Christmas list making, because especially. Automatopoeia of bells is right out. Yeah. I don't just have a bell, don't go ding dong 
or ring-a-ding-ding-ding-ding or whatever else it is that comes into the mind of the people who created these things in the 1950s when they inflicted all of them on us. Right, except not all in the 1950s. Like, we're not going to play it, I promise. But uh, in the Paul McCartney Christmas song, which is a bad Christmas song for a lot of different reasons, he does does go ding-dong at a certain point. Yeah, he ding dong ding. Yeah, it's it's like the SEO search terms of all of the things that are bad about Christmas songs, and he's just sort of piled it into one big document, and he's going through it. And while Stevie Wonder can do it and make it sort of tolerable, the Paul McCartney version, it's just like sort of uncanny valley and very strange. But you also feel as though if George Harrison or, or John Lennon were around, he could have gone, what's another thing bells can say besides ding dong? You know, they could have come <laughs> up with, it's like Paul just like ding dong is the only thing he can think of. He's just not going to bother to come up with something more creative. All right, so let's let's go to a good one. Let's go from uh, Hell to Heaven. And this is a song, frankly, I didn't know. I was, I'm not familiar with this song. I've tried to learn as much of the Kelly Clarkson oeuvre as I can, but that really hasn't really amounted to that much. So this is I believe it's number uh, five on your list. Or I think it's number three. three. I know number five is Dominic the Italian Christmas Donkey, which tells you how correct this list is, by the way, but very correct. <laughs> right. uh, we'll, we'll go to Dominic I think in a it's second. number two or three. All right, so this is, this is one you really like a lot. It's called Under, Under the Tree. That's Kelly Clarkson. By the way, if you'd like to get into bitter arguments with uh, Alexandra, well, first of all, the Washington Post has all kinds of ways you can do that. But I could offer our phone number, 860-275-7266, 860-275-7266. So I, I have to say, I kind of—I mean, it's hard to object to this song, right? It's got a— It's a banger. Yeah. It's, it's a bouncy It's a bouncy little number. Yeah, I, I like it. I like Kelly Clarkson and the— I, I wish that we lived in a world where our biggest problem was that no new songs have been added to the Christmas canon right. with like five exceptions since the 1950s <laughs> when they sort of set it in stone. And for, unfortunately, we live in a world with many other greater difficulties. But I'm trying to counteract that chaos in this small area, which is I think this song has been written like since the 2000s. It's Kelly Clarkson, a beloved vocalist, and it. It slaps, as the kids, I believe, are now saying. And I think we should include it in the canon. It's got jingling. It doesn't bug you too much. There's a sax solo. Yeah. And it just really gets you in the holiday spirit. Are the kids, I, I are the kids, really, are the kids really saying it slaps? Or is that going to turn out to be like on fleek, you know, and I'll use it. And it'll turn out that's really not a thing. I don't know. The internet seems to be saying it, but maybe I'm mispronouncing it. Uh, <laughs> oh, you're just reading it off the internet. Well, that, that doesn't make that doesn't work at all. Hey, would you, how would you feel about having a, a brief conversation with the person whose name is Noel? She just called it. Oh, very in favor. All right, so let's take this call from Noel in Fairfield. Hi, you're on the air. Hi, hi there. Merry so, Christmas. Merry Christmas to Hello, you. Noel. <laughs> so, Hello. So, tell us about your existential dilemma. So every person that I meet, I introduce myself, oh, were you born on Christmas? Yeah. And then they break into the song, yeah. the first LL. So from the time I was little, little, I just, I don't really care for the traditional version of the song. <laughs> I wonder why. I, I, I have to say, 
you've got to check out Sarah McLaughlin's version. Really? It came out like five or six years ago. Look it up and listen to it because I think it's spectacular. And now that's on my top ten list. Really? Because Sarah McLaughlin just makes everything better, right? Oh, my it's God. It's true. Yeah. yeah. yeah she, she does, does. an amazing version that actually puts my kids in trance and they feel like they're like on camels in, in the desert. I mean, it's fantastic instrument and um, it's beautiful. Alexander, do you have a question for Noel? No, that's lovely. I would say one of the things I learned from compiling the list is that Sarah McLaughlin actually has really made every Christmas song she touched better. And it's been a wonderful discovery. Yeah, I think that's true. So I can back you up there. She has the right, like, for that, uh, for the main Peanuts Christmas song, Christmas Time is Here. She's got exactly the right plaintive qualities. So I just want to know, Noelle, in general, if you were to ballpark, just ballpark the number of people who, upon meeting you, have gone, Noel, Noel. Like, is it a hundred, a thousand, like, just over the course of your life? Oh, it's probably between 700 and a thousand. I mean, it's it's just, it feels like just about everybody. <laughs> You're starting, oh she's starting to cry. I think we have to put her on hold. So uh, I don't blame her at all. So I, I have to say at a certain point, Alexandra Petri, you were doing this ranking of 100 Christmas songs, and I can see the whole thing starting to, the whole structure, the scaffolding beginning to creak in the air, you know, as you begin, you're trying to sort of put one thing ahead of another. And I think we see it completely break down when you realize in the midst of this list that somehow or other, all I want for Christmas is is my two front teeth is ahead of Silent Night. (laughs) Yeah, no, that was the point. I'm like, well, I... I'm in a deep hole out of which I cannot get, and we're just going to keep going at this point because I don't know how to fix it. I think there's another one where I thought the Muppets song, like One More Sleep Till Christmas, and I put it on the list, and I thought, no, this is too low. I will move it, and then I moved it, but I didn't remove it from the top. And so it's at a certain point, as George Lucas said, films aren't completed, they're only abandoned. And that's how I feel about the list of Christmas songs. There's a certain point when you just have to get it all down there and say, you know, all I want for Christmas is my two front teeth. I'm going to argue that it is superior to Silent Night, if only in the interest of maintaining that this list is finished. So, by the way, speaking of George Lucas, I, I did tweet this at you earlier today, but you might not have seen it. I actually have. I, The little drummer boy used to offend my ears and kind of frighten me and make me upset. And I actually overcame it. Uh, and I can help you do that, too. We could do it right here on the air if you want to. Oh, boy. I'm not, I'm not sure. Like, so sort of like clockwork orange style. Right. No, you just have to repeat after me. Because you'll be able to do this given what I know about your film orientation. Okay. All right. Ready? If you strike me down, little drummer boy. If you strike me down, little drummer boy. I will become more powerful than you can possibly imagine. I will become more powerful than you can possibly imagine. All right, so the little drummer boy has no power over you anymore. He can't hurt you anymore. You'll, you'll, you will find this. You know, we okay. Could, we could play it again, and it wouldn't bother you, but we're not going to do that. We're going to go to Doug in New Haven, who wants to bring up one of the songs on your list. Uh, Doug, what's on your mind? Dominic Christmas Monkey All right, so I think before we discuss Dominic the Christmas Donkey, we have to play Dominic the Christmas Donkey, which I think we do have in there. Please do. Hey, jingity jing, it's Dominic the Donkey. Jingity jing, the Italian Christmas Donkey. La 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 la. Santa's 
I like how he's not just the Italian Christmas donkey. He's the Italian Christmas donkey from Chicago. Um, <laughs> all right. So, I love this song. <laughs> I'm just confirmed in my opinion of this song by having listened to that delightful excerpt. Uh, <laughs> Can you defend I, it? Can you use words to defend it? Or is it just I, something that's in your heart? No, I think my, my favorite genre of Christmas song is one where you make up a character that didn't exist before and insist that he's essential to Christmas, like Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer or right. Susie Snowflake. And I like the Dominic the Italian Christmas donkey, which seems like a randomly assorted, just sort of selected jumble of nouns and adjectives, right. uh, has been summoned to save Christmas in the Italian hills, which I guess are too difficult for reindeer. Yes. And I... I also like it, it's sort of one of those annoying songs that is it's so deliberately and transparently annoying, but not to the point of being the chipmunk song that it sort of won me over. I'm admittedly a soft touch for annoying novelty songs, which you can tell if you look at most of the rankings on this All right. list. All right. We're going to go but, to uh, I think there's time for some cross-examination here. Uh, so yeah, please, please tell me I'm wrong because I, I objectively I'm, I'm not going to do this. But uh, Tom from New Hartford, I think, is on the line right now. Tom, did you want to cross-examine this witness? Uh, sure. I mean, I was more uh, looking for clarification on the ranking system involved, because doesn't Dominic the Donkey have both clickety-click as well as a hee-haw-hee-haw in there? Oh, yeah. So the, uh, about, how about that? How about that? On the Monopoly rule. No, he, it has a jiggity jig, which is just a quote from Blade Runner, probably. Um, and, uh, and the hee-haw... Eh, you know, you're right. I'm going to have to concede the hee-haw. Based on my own metric, this song should be ranked much lower. Right. And I don't disagree with its placement at all. I, I was just... This is the kind of thing that winds up... It, it's going to wind great. up in court. It's going to wind up... There's going to be civil litigation about this whole thing. Oh, yeah. You, you sort absolutely. of know that. Uh, I mean, let's put it this way, Alexandra. This project hasn't stopped destroying you yet. You know, this is... <laughs> we're kind of more in the middle, I think. Uh, no, it's the gift that keeps on giving. Right. So I thought you made an excellent point. I, I had not realized this before, but that there are basically only tr two Trans-Siberian Orchestra songs, the good one and the bad one. I think that's correct. <laughs> if there are other ones, I don't know about them. <laughs> All right. So that, the, the good one is the one that's sort of metal with the guitars, where if you go to a, a very ostentatiously decorated house with lots of lights and they're doing sort of a coordinated light pattern, it's always playing in the background. And then, you know, all the lights go up and the wreaths flash and it's playing a Trans-Siberian Orchestra and it's, you know, really cool right. or dope, as the kids would say. I don't know what the kids are saying. I have no real conception. <laughs> but then there's the other one that is just Pockles Bell's Cannon being sung by uh, a children's choir for no discernible reason with Christmas lyrics. And that one's terrible. And the radio seems to like that one better for reasons I'm unable to discern. All right. So radio stations play the good Trans-Siberian Trans Orchestra song, not the bad one. Here's um, Sean from Madison with a possible uh, Christmas song obscurity. Let's see what he's got. Hey, Sean. Hey, how you doing, Colin? We're great, good. Great to talk to you guys. So, um, you know, my son and I, we, we typically, in, like in terms of forced rankings for Christmas songs, we kind of defer to the religious overtones, you know, the God rest you merry gentlemen and all that, um, you know, O Night Divine. But there was a catchy little number that we, we did discover a few years ago called Susie Snowflake. And um, I don't have your list in front of me or anything like that in terms of the top songs, but 
I'm not sure if you're familiar with that song. In, in my in my head, I am in my headphones. I have the sheet yeah. music, in fact. Uh, <laughs> You've got the I sheet music? I inherited it from my mother. Uh, well, and she's still alive, but she just gave me the sheet music because yeah. she didn't want to have Susie Snowflake in the house any longer. Right. Um, but but that yeah, was that was a, a that was a coke dealer she was talking about, not the song, right? <laughs> yeah, get, get Susie Snowflake out of here. Uh, All right, you so can't you, pay her. Yeah. Um, no, the <laughs> it Go was. Ahead. It's a great song, and it is not on the list because I had lost control of the list at that point. But I think it, it belongs at least in the top twenty. Right. Um, so Susie Snowflake uh, for the win. Okay, so uh, we're going to go to a break pretty soon, but I've got a few other things I want to bring up, and then after the break. Well, we can take some more phone calls. Um, I actually have some songs that were not on the list that I'm going to have Alexandra quickly kind of spot review because I, I think they're actually pretty good Christmas songs. But uh, I want to talk about um, uh, your assessment of the song, the beloved Burl Ives classic, Holly Jolly Christmas. You say that song is trying too hard, right? I think it is. I think Holly Jolly is not a real adjective, and they should stop trying to make Holly Jolly happen. Uh, I also think it sounds like if you're trying to warn someone to stay away from like a coworker who's a little, you know, holly jolly at the at the Christmas party, it's like I you know stay away from Burl. Uh, I, it just it also has that sort of Comey esque oh by golly <laughs> thing going on that I, I find it's sort of grating. Right. But it's fun to I, I like the sort of weird mandolin break that comes in the mid midsection. So she's talking about James Covey when she says, oh, by golly, have a holly jolly Christmas this year, which I think is in the transcript somewhere anyway. I, I, like, I, the Mueller has that now. Yeah, um, no, it's definitely there. All right. So um, what do we do? So what we should do is we're going to go to a break. But as we go to the break, we're going to play your number one choice. Uh, the the number one ranked Alexandra Petri Christmas song, um, which you know I I think I gained a lot of momentum from the the Hugh Grant at the door scene in Love Actually, but but you would put it number one no matter what, right? Absolutely. You know, uh, offer a defense, explain uh, your your reasoning here. I just think everything about this song is perfect. Every word is satisfying to say. Uh, it rolls off the tongue. You get to shout, bring me flesh, which is just a great thing to have to do in a holiday context. And the event that it describes is frankly not that impressive of a miracle. Um, it's like sometimes <laughs> someone gave you a hand warmer when you were like out on a ski slope. Uh, but people have been singing carols about it for decades. And it just it, it has a sort of earthy roundness to it that I find immensely enjoyable. And it's always fun to sing. All right, the number one hit on the Alexandra Petri Christmas song, Hit Parade, Good King Wences. Good King Wenceslas looked out on the feast of Stephen When the snow lay round about, deep and crisp and even Brightly shone the moon at night Though the frost was cruel When a poor man came inside Gathering winter fuel So White Christmas is basically the rug that ties the whole show together, right? Today's show was produced by Blitz and Breedy and me, Kyone Wolf. Amanda Fish is glad they eat birds in that 12 Days of Christmas song. The part of Bill Curry was played by Burl Ives. On tomorrow's show, a frank conversation about the idea of disabilities. And now, back to Colin. 
right, you chipmunks. Ready to sing your song? Okay, Simon. Okay. Okay, Theodore. Okay. Okay, Alvin. Alvin. Alvin! Okay! I have a very wonderful, heartwarming story about that song, but I'm not I'm not gonna tell it right now because we have Alexandra Petri and I don't want to waste any of her time. She's the Washington Post columnist who painstakingly ranked the 100 best Christmas songs of all time. Although really sort of some of those were the, you know, say 20 to 5, 25 to 30 worst Christmas songs. They weren't all the 100 best Christmas songs. That's That can't be right. So, um, and this is one for, oh, can I just, uh, Alexandra, can I tell you one great piece of trivia about? Please. All right. So, um, you know the movie Rear Window? Yes. So, you know, he's looking at all those people and there's a guy who plays the piano over there and sort of all those windows he's looking in. Mm-hmm. That's the guy who does the chipmunks. That's Ross Bagdasarian. No way! Yep, 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 yep. Uh, yep. Can, oh, wow. That's... You can win money in bars. Uh, There's a unified continuity <laughs> across the right. chipmunk universe I think, and right. Alfred Hitchcock. I think once you know that thing, all of Western civilization makes sense. Everything kind of knits into place once you know that one little missing piece of information. So you made this list, and I'm wondering, like, in terms of pushback, in terms of you know, either people outraged by how high something ranked or or despondent about how low something ranked. Was there a particular thing that you did that especially offended your readership? I actually, I think most people who read all the way through the list felt that I was more to be pitied than censured. <laughs> and so most of the feedback I've gotten has actually been people saying, did you know that there's a regional song that uh, somehow didn't make your list. So there's like crabs for Christmas, which I've subsequently listened to and found delightful. Um, That's treatable, or, though. That's treatable. If you get to urgent care before midnight. Yeah, Eve. no. It, uh, if guided by Rudolph or others. <laughs> um, and the, yeah, crabs for Christmas, uh, a classic, actually about Maryland. Um, yeah, I guess. Uh, then... There's six white boomers, which I guess could be tied into this show, and uh, but that's it's about Australia. It turns out uh, it's about the six kangaroos who really get the Christmas hopping in uh, Australia, and that one I had not heard before and got to listen to, and. But mostly it's been people thanking me for ranking Dominic the Italian Christmas donkey as high as I did. Or uh, not. And feeling or not. that he was a misunderstood gem. Yeah. Uh, you did complain about the 12 Days of Christmas, about the bird carnage that's in there. Um, you're not wrong. I mean, there's an awful lot of birds. I, I, do, are they, do they eat all of them? I don't know. If you don't eat them, I can't imagine they're living in conditions that make them very happy. Yeah, no, it's like factory farming after that. I mean, it's not good. So uh, I yeah, want to like, don't give people bunnies for holidays. Well, equally, you don't want to give them two turtle doves, three French hens, four calling birds, partridges. Just, you know, that's right. not responsible pet ownership or food stewardship. <laughs> All right. So I wanted to play one or two songs that uh, weren't on your list. I, you, you've had a, enough of that already, I realize. But So this is a song that was actually recorded in 1950. It's been covered a bunch of times. I actually think it's a great song, but people don't know it. It's called The Man with the Bag. Old Mr. Kringle is soon going to jingle the bells that And you get the you get how it goes. 
But that's that, that, what are you laughing for? I can hear you laughing. I'm laughing. Well, because I, I had heard that before. I just think the phrase the man with the bag. Yeah, I know. It's like someone was trying to describe Santa Claus without offending him by using any personal <laughs> characteristics that related to him. It's like, well, yeah. you could say he's jolly and round and, you know, his stomach shakes like a bowl full of jelly. He's got a white beard. No, I got to be. I don't want to offend Santa. I'm going to say he's the man with the bag. Right. Look into the crowd and find the man with the bag. <laughs> <laughs> Either that or it's like Curtis Mayfield's alternative title to Pusher Man, you know. Uh um, Oh yeah. No, we're getting a lot of this theme. Uh but oh, the true, man with true, the bag. True. 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 So, so people weren't offended. People didn't. I, I, I want to talk to you about Winter Wonderland because um, I have a little bit of a problem with that song. Um, which Go is on. well, uh, you make a snowman, and immediately he's prying into your personal life. Like, are you married? Uh, my, my attitude towards the snowman is I made you. You could have been in a snowbank 30 seconds ago, and suddenly you're asking me questions about my marital status. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, I feel like the snowman is an unwitting pawn in the sort of like passive aggressive games of this couple. They clearly had some issues they hadn't resolved, and they're constructing a snowman in order to voice their concerns about where their relationship is headed. The snowman's really not an active participant in this. If anything, he's the victim here. Well, as somebody pointed out to me on social media today, it gets a little creepier, and your theory starts to hold up when the next thing they say to him is, but you can do the job while you're in town. What's that all about? What are they talking about there? Well, I mean, uh, there, I guess Parson Brown is not in town, and they're hoping that I, I've heard this suggested as maybe it should be a dialogue where the first person says, he'll say, Are you married? And the person in front, We'll say, No, man. Yeah. And then the first one goes, But you can do the job, cutting off when you're in town. So there, somebody's not as eager, but that's sort of really cutting the line into very fine pieces that I'm not certain is borne out by the text. Right. No, it sounds to me like a contract's been put out on Dominic the donkey or something, you know? You can do the job while you're in town. Yeah, the man with the bag. The man with the uh, bag. <laughs> See, it's all fitting together there. Uh, we're talking to Alexandra Petri right now. She is a very, very funny writer for The Washington Post, and she has ranked uh, Christmas songs, 100 Christmas songs. So I guess I have time. Well, I, I, I wanted to ask you, and rather than play one more song, we're, we're going to end the show with what I think is a great overlooked Christmas song. And if people want to know what the song is, they're going to have to email me at colin, C-O-L-I-N, at WNPR.org. We're not going to tell you what the song is. You want to have to find out from me. No salesman will call. This is not a way that, for me to sell you aluminum siding or anything like that. But you do have to ask me what the song is called. So so there were people were not. I mean, this seems like such an inflammatory topic, Alexandra. I'm, I'm Amazed that people weren't like calling up and and like how could you and that kind of, there, there wasn't anything like that. Well, I think that people don't have like regional loyalties to songs, uh, particularly. I guess, actually, that was the one we did get. We're like regional songs. Why wasn't Fairy Tale of New York on the yeah. list, or why wasn't Christmas Eve in Washington? Uh, actually, no one wrote in to complain that Christmas Eve in Washington was not on there, even though it is <laughs> one of my favorites. So I think songs where people think, well, that's. That's mine. Why isn't it there? But anyone who read the list clearly could tell that my methodology was not strong and didn't hold it against me. 
I, I was surprised too. I, I have because I have psychologically uh, through Jedi Force triumphed over Little Drummer Boy, and it can no longer hurt me. The, for me, the most uh, alarming Christmas song, the creepiest Christmas song, is "I Saw Mommy Kissing Santa Claus." I mean, that's just meant to stir up some kind of trauma in us, don't you think? I think absolutely. I think somebody on Twitter was saying that the child is now forced to choose between the reality of <laughs> adultery or the unreality of Santa Claus. And it's like, dang, eloquently put uh, Twitter person that I should credit this remark to. So g- Google those words and see on Twitter who said them, and then we can all thank him or her appropriately. Um, but yeah, it's, a, it's an unfortunate position to place the child in, and I think raises all kinds of things that will have to be dealt with in later sessions. Right. I mean, it, it basically creates all kinds of primal anxiety in us. And then, you know, at the end, it kind of resolves us, uh, resolves it a little bit. Oh, just relax. Don't worry about it. It was daddy. Well, like, why did you do this? Why did you even take us there? Why did we have to be worried that it wasn't daddy? Uh, no, I'm sure like Freud has some essay where he's like, the child must journey to discover it. And at last, that the father and the Santa are one figure, like united. And but it's a. I'm sure it costs decades of uh, one-on-one strict Freudian analysis in order to come to this conclusion and so oh. forth. And, wow, my Freud accent needs serious No, it's, it's an uncanny impersonation. It's like he's in the room with me. Yeah. Uh, uh, it, it's amazing. Uh, all right, we're going to have to stop there. I could talk to Alexandra Petri about almost anything, almost forever. Washington Post columnist, bravest person in the world, ranked 100 Christmas songs, and lived to tell the tale. All right, you're going to have to write to me if you want to know what this song is. This is- 